This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. This next story, well, we got it from the Wall Street Journal. That's where it started. There was a headline that read, He was the NBA's best ref, then... He went to a Catholic seminary. Well, that caught our attention, and we had to run down Steve Javi for what we like to say is the rest of the story. Here's Steve. My mom and dad are first-generation Polish-Americans. Their, uh, their parents came over from Poland and settled in a place in uh, Philadelphia, a Polish town called Maniunk. And from there, that's where they grew up, and they were probably, I think my mom and dad lived maybe like four or five blocks away from each other. I was raised in a Polish Catholic family. Uh, my dad's brother, his older brother, was a uh, Catholic priest in the Archdiocese here in Philadelphia for about almost about 69 years until he passed away about five years ago. And so the, the Catholic influence is always around me. My mom and dad took me to Mass every week and confession every every two weeks, whether I liked it or not, and uh, was raised in a... Uh, uh, the, like I said, Catholic family, Catholic grade school, went to a private Catholic high school. Um, but my uh, my family influence is really, really big because my mom and dad came from two big families. So I had a lot of aunts and uncles. My uncles were such an influence besides my father, of course, on my life because they were the most charitable men I've ever seen in my life, the most giving men, not only just to their parishes and families, but to everybody in the community. It seemed like everybody knew my dad's family. Uh, and uh, they, my dad's family helped everybody out, in my, especially my grandfather, like during the Depression era in the early 1900s. So um, that generosity has uh, gone through the generations, and it didn't go unnoticed to me as a young, young man and also as a, uh, as a man growing up uh, that my dad was that way, and my brother was that way too, my older brother. But um, it's, it's, it's funny. Back then, our faith was something you did, in my opinion, now looking back on it, because you had to do it, number one. It really didn't have much to do about relationship with Jesus Christ. It was something that this was the faith. You go to church, you go to confession, and hopefully you check all the boxes. So when you meet the Lord, you sit there and you have your report card and he lets you in, you know, for uh, to heaven. And uh, obviously since then, I've learned a little bit more about my faith and delved into it more and realized it's a lot more than just that. But, um, but my parents, they were just, um, I, I thank God every day for them. They were just, my dad was a man of integrity. He was also an umpire in the American League for 25 years. So sports had a big influence. Faith and sports in my life, which seemed to be culminating right now in my life. Growing up, refereeing was not even in my thought process. I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. I loved all sports. I grew up playing football, basketball, baseball. I swam. I played golf. I just loved all sports. Loved being outdoors. Loved playing. Uh, and I told my mom one day, I said, look, I'm going to sign a Major League Baseball contract and buy you this big home you've always wanted. Obviously, that didn't come to fruition, but um, I did play baseball all throughout my uh, youth and then into high school and college. That was probably my best sport. But refereeing really um, didn't come into my mind until I was in college. I dabbled in intramural basketball, and I did it basically just to collect like five or ten bucks a game that they were offering, 
and that would be my date money for the weekend. And I kind of liked it. So at the age of 20 years old, 21 years old, I uh, joined the local association, high school association in Pennsylvania here, and uh, and started refereeing like fifth and sixth grade boys and girls, and seventh and eighth grade, and then junior varsity in high school, and worked my way up to varsity in high school, basically all for making a few extra bucks. That was it. Never thinking it was going to be my career. And then once my career in baseball, which I was pursuing after college, I was um, signed. I wasn't drafted, but I signed as a free agent with the Baltimore Orioles. I, after about a year, I hurt my arm and went to spring training the following year in the minor leagues, of course, nothing major league, and got released. So here at 22 years old, my dream had ended, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I actually got into sales with Johnson & Johnson, the baby product company, and I sold for them for about nine or ten months until I finally realized, you know what, I could make a living at this, there's no doubt, I was pretty good at what I did, but I really don't enjoy this. And what do I really enjoy? What do I have a passion for? And the passion was for sports. Well, I can't play anymore, never coached, and here I was officiating a little bit in the uh, high school, and I really kind of liked high school officiating and basketball, how quick it was. So I decided to uh, put all my eggs in one basket of like starting to officiate. But basketball still wasn't sticking out yet. I loved baseball. It was my first love playing. So I, what I did is I went down to uh, the baseball umpire school in St. Petersburg at the age of like, I think, 22, 23. And uh, luckily got chosen to work the minor leagues. So what I would do for two and a half, three years, the next two and a half, three years, I would umpire baseball in the minor leagues in the summer, and I'd come back and referee basketball, high school basketball in the winter. And in doing that, I realized what sport I loved the most in officiating, and it was basketball. Basketball is just so much quicker, so challenging. Plus, you're indoors, temperature controlled, and you have a clock. And somebody once told me years ago, never officiate a sport that doesn't have a clock because you never know when you're going to get home. Um, so I, I pursued, I pursued uh, both of them, but then I finally gave way to basketball after about two and a half years in the minor leagues, and uh, luckily got accepted into the CBA, which is the minor league for the NBA. Quite frankly, I just had dinner, uh, I should say lunch yesterday, with my old CBA commissioner, Jimmy Drucker, his name is. He was about my age also, and he was the commissioner of the CBA, and he lived near my hometown. So we uh, just had lunch yesterday reminiscing about the old days of the CBA. And uh, this is how I started, you know, my first... You know, uh, my first road to the NBA is putting time in the CBA to put five years in the CBA prior to being hired in the NBA. My first year in the league, which was 1986, was actually Dr. J's last year in the league. So I came in during Dr. J's last year. And then, of course, now you had the era of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, who then gave way and, and passed the torch to Michael Jordan, who then passed the torch to Kobe, who passed the torch to LeBron. So I was very, very fortunate to be able to work with these uh, great athletes. And you're right about how basketball just really rose in popularity. And I give, I give all the credit to David Stern, just a marketing genius. He grew the NBA to where it is today, which is a global sport, which is amazing. And at the time I started out, I mean, if I told you what my salary was, I, wouldn't, I, I won't. But, and then to what they're making today, it's just, it's just amazing. And uh, deservedly so, because the league does make, you know, an awful lot of money. There's no doubt worldwide. But it was, um, it was incredible. Dr. J, it's funny, I remember him because the first game I worked him, I figured, okay, I'll have an interaction with him. But Dr. J was the kind of guy that didn't talk too much. I didn't even know what his voice sounded like until you heard him on an interview. He was a guy that just wanted to play the game and uh, let's get it going. 
Uh, Magic and Bird, of course, we know that relationship and how uh, incredible they were for the college basketball and also for the NBA. And then Michael Jordan, I was very fortunate in my 25 years, 15 of those 25 years, I refereed in the NBA Finals. So uh, I was lucky to work a lot of the games that Michael Jordan had during his, uh, I think, six, six titles that he won. So that was a lot of fun doing that and sharing that, too, with my wife. Uh, she would come along on some road trips and to share in the excitement and so on. And then we get, obviously, to, to Kobe and LeBron and, you know, what, a, what an untimely death with Kobe. But what a competitor he was. And I know when he first came in the league, he said he wanted to be the next Michael Jordan. Well, he probably was the closest, in my opinion, to being the next Michael Jordan with the way he played on the floor. He had this tenacity about him. Um, and I didn't even know Kobe was Catholic until like the day after he passed away and all these articles came out. And I just, wow, what a wonderful testament of his faith and how during his hard times that he relied on his faith and relied on his local parish priest to get him through the most difficult times in his life. But um, he, he approached, I think he approached life the same way he approached it on the court with, with the tenacity that he was going to succeed. And especially when his marriage was kind of failing at the time, he said, you know what, I got to go all in. I got to put all my efforts into my marriage. And he did. And these guys were just class guys, too. They were, yeah, sure, they complain once in a while because they're competitive and they want to win. And we as referees are competitive, too. So it's, it's a tussle back and forth of who's going to win. It's a will. But usually the referee does win. I have to tell you that. Um, and so, but it was really, I mean, when I look back at the time you're refereeing, you don't have the chance to really enjoy the athleticism of the players because referees look at a game totally differently than from a fan perspective. We have a job to do. We have to get calls right. We have a system of mechanics that you have to coordinate with your fellow partners on the floor. So your concentration level has to be such that you can't really enjoy the game as a fan. And that's fine too. But now as I look back and look at some of the old highlights of the games and It's just uh, amazing that I actually did that for a living, and God blessed me with the ability to do that. Me and Speed just don't get along because I was I'm just a slow Polish guy who just plods along. Let's put it that way. And I would use try to use my uh, intelligence to beat the guys down the floor, not my speed. It's a game that the referees keep getting older, and the players keep getting younger, and eventually. Unless you're just blessed with a body that doesn't wear out, your knees, your hips, your back, something's going to wear out. And for me, it was my knees. Probably, I guess, it was in year 2000, 2001, I think back-to-back I had knee surgeries on my right knee. Nothing major, just your scope, because I was wearing out my cartilage, my meniscus on my knee. So when it got to the year of 2009, um, I got eight more years than I thought I was going to get out. But I'll I'll go back to 2001 and 2000 when I had the first knee surgeries. That's when I started thinking to myself. I I still remember where I was. I was at lunch in Los Angeles at our hotel. And I knew I was going to be going through my second surgery. And I said to myself, is this all it is in life? That I'm going to be known for like blowing a whistle in basketball? And I'm going to leave this world doing that? Now, at the time, my wife and I had been running a foundation for local charities in our Philadelphia area for about 10 or 12 years. And we raised a lot of money for the uh, local community. But I knew just something was tugging at my heart that I had to do more. I had to do more than just refereeing, but I also had to do more than just raising money too. And I didn't know, I had no idea, but I still remember that passing thought of like, 
what's going to happen after this career because I have to do something more. So we fast forward eight years, uh, nine years to when I finally um, really injured my knee, which is my 24th year in 2009. And I came off the floor early in that year, in November. I was actually at a game here in Philadelphia. And my good friend, Dr. Jack McPhillamy, who was the Philadelphia 76ers doctor, came in the locker room afterwards and I said, Doc, I'm really hurting. He examined me and said, Steve, uh, let's take two to three weeks off right now. Come to the office tomorrow and we're going to start going through some testing. So I took it to, I called the office, took two or three weeks off. And in testing, we found out that I had no cartilage left and I was all bone on bone. And now this is in my 24th year. And and I'm sitting there thinking, ah, oh, geez, is this going to be the end, Doc? And he said, well, Steve, let's see. I mean, um, we're going to rehab. We're going to give you some injections. We'll try. But I think let's take this year off and just work at rehabbing everything and see what happens next fall. During the course of that year of rehabbing, uh, it was during the Lenten season. My, my wife and I have a place down at the New Jersey Shore. And we went to confession. And after confession, sitting there praying, my wife comes up behind me and she hands me this little brochure about prayer. And it says, when you pray, to be specific. So I'm sitting here thinking to the Lord, because I have no idea where he's pointing me right now with regards to my career. And I said, you know what, Lord, this is, uh, if you can give me year 25, I'd really like that. Because when I was hired at the age of 30, 31, I thought 25 year career would be wonderful. For no other reason, it's a round number, a round figure. And I said to the Lord, if you give me my 25th year next year, then I'm all yours. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And of course, I had no idea what I was going to do or what he was going to call me to do at that time. And so as the summer went on, going to the fall of next year, the start of the following season of 2010, 2009, 2010 season, um, the rehab was coming along well. The knee was uh, getting stronger, wasn't having, wasn't having much pain. So now it came time for preseason. And uh, preseason comes along. And I said, Doc, what do you think? And he said, well, let's give it a shot. So we started actually running instead of just doing exercises. And I was running on a treadmill, not feeling any pain. Told the league that assign me some preseason games and let's see what happens. And uh, they assigned me preseason games. And a funny anecdote to the first preseason game I had I went up to Brooklyn, uh, the, the, the Nets, and in the first five minutes of the game, and I was always noted to be an uh, aggressive official, and the trainer up there, Timmy Walsh, great guy, good friend, he's on, he came in the locker before the hand, beforehand and said, how you feeling? And he tested me out. He said, hey, good luck, man. Well, in the first five minutes of the game, I had my first technical foul. The whole bench of Brooklyn just starts laughing, and uh, Timmy Walsh, the trainer, just says, didn't take you long to get back in the swing of things, did it? And I said, no, it didn't, and it really didn't. But, um, but I, I got through that game, got through preseason, and started the season out and f actually finished the season. But towards the end of that year, I knew that this was going to be my last year. My knee was getting weaker. I could feel the pain in the knee. And I was just like trying to hang on for my 25th year, and luckily did. And has, um, as God blessed me with, with having that year, he also blessed me with working the very last game of that championship uh, season, which was game six of the uh, Dallas Mavericks Miami Heat uh, championship series where Dallas won. And so I was assigned game six and still remember that last game. And I'll never forget it with my wife and family. Um, friends are in the stands knowing this is going to be my last game because my knee is giving way. And it's time to reflect at how blessed I was to have this career 
to be able to travel the country, travel the world, provide for my family uh, just through basketball officiating. And then at the same time, I was thinking that, and this is all during the last minute of play, I was thinking about, I wonder what the Lord is planning for me now after this. And I had no idea. I remember once I called and uh, told the league office that I had to retire because of my knee. I couldn't run anymore. I started discerning. And now, and it's funny because people, I hear the word discern and some people think of you're on your knees praying each and every day. Like, oh my God, what's going to happen? But discerning to me was, yeah, in morning prayer, just say, Lord, I trust you. And whatever, wherever you call me, just let me know and pull me along as he continues to do today, to this day. And so I prayed, and it was like June that I retired, and this was probably the end of December, beginning of January, like six months later. And I remember going to a little uh, presentation. I shouldn't say a little presentation, a pretty, pretty big presentation with a man named Jeff Cavins, a world-renowned Catholic speaker who's at our church. And he talked about how God speaks to you. And it's funny because I, um, as he says that, I start giggling to myself. I said, yeah, he might speak to you, but he doesn't speak to me. And so he told the story about how God does speak to you. Jeff told a story about he was on the road for about two weeks. And he's from Minneapolis, and he's a big Vikings fan. He got home, went to church. It was on a Sunday after his two-week um, hiatus, you know, preaching around the world, around the country. And he says, you know what? I wanted nothing to do but watch the Vikings game. So I put my sweatsuit on, got in my recliner, and put the Vikings game on. And as soon as I put the Vikings game on, he said, I got this thought to go back up to church. And he said, I, I said, no, no, I'm not going back up to church. I just want to relax today, be with my wife, watch the Vikings game. But he couldn't get the thought out of his mind. So he tells his wife what's happening. And she says, you know, Jeff, if you don't go up to church, it's going to bug you all day. So he reluctantly gets out of his recliner, out of his sweatsuit, put his clothes, you know, good clothes back on, goes up to church. And as he opens the church door, the pastor standing in front of the altar, talking to another gentleman saying, oh, and there he is right now. Apparently they were talking about Jeff Cavins, whether he was the head of the RCIA program at the time, I'm not quite sure, but they were just talking about Jeff. He walks in the door and the pastor says, come on, come on and meet this guy. Well, he said, that's how God talks to you. At that very moment, the word deacon came into my mind. Now, I didn't know what a deacon did. We had a couple of nice guys at our parish who were deacons, really thought they were good guys. No idea what's going on. All I knew that I had asked one deacon once what he went through, and he goes, seven years of formation. And I go, hey, good luck to you. And here, this word deacon, I can't get out of my mind for the rest of the afternoon. So as I tell my wife that evening what happened to me, she said, well, you better go up and see our pastor, Monsignor Picard. And so I give him a call on the next day, and I say, hey, Monsignor, I got to talk to you. He goes, sure, Steve, come on in. I tell him the story, and he actually starts giggling. And... Um, I said, Monsignor, I, I, you know, I just don't feel like he's calling me. I mean, what? He says, Steve, if you came in here with a Bible underneath your arm, preaching to me that you're going to become a deacon, I would have thrown you out. He said, this is how God works. There's no doubt. But I did tell him, I said, Monsignor, I got a problem. And he looked at me and goes, I mean, seriously, he was saying, what's your problem? I go, I love golf, and I like light beer, too. And he looked at me and goes, well, do you embarrass yourself? I go, on a golf course, I do. But um, from there, he just said, Steve, look, Put one foot in front of the other. You never know where God's going to be calling you. If he's calling you here, he'll, he'll lead you in that direction. If for some reason this isn't your path, he'll put up a little stoppage, a little wall there, and it, you know, then he'll guide you to another way. So 
that was seven and a half years ago where I put one foot in front of the other, and that took me one foot in front of the other going down the aisle of the cathedral in June to ordination, which at that time walking down the aisle, I still remember saying, Lord, I guess this is where you're calling me. And so I'm all yours. People ask my wife about, were you surprised that this happened? She, say, she always says she was surprised, but she wasn't shocked because of the fact that she knew I was going to be doing something, serving the Lord and serving his church. And she said, and when this happened, she goes, okay, fine. This is what the Lord's calling him. How it's changed my life, and I still struggle with it too. I still struggle with it. I, I trust an awful, an awful lot more because I know to get through seven years of formation at my age of taking tests, of writing papers, of sitting through master's level courses and midterms and finals, my buddies look at me and go, at your age, you're doing all this stuff. And it's just, but it's something that I just enjoyed doing. I enjoyed learning more and more about my faith and growing in my relationship with Christ. Um, I still should trust more. I, I struggle with that because I, and I, and I, I do trust, but I just, it's not totally there yet. I mean, I'm letting him drive the bus, but I got one hand on the wheel sometimes. And I got to learn to just sit back in the passenger seat and let him take me because that's what he does. I, I couldn't have done the, the work, the schoolwork, the papers, the tests without him and him guiding me because I would sit there before a big exam and just say, Lord, I'm going to put the time in, but if this is what you want me to do, please help me and send your Holy Spirit to guide me and on. He really did. And even till this day, I mean, when I have a little anxiety over homilies that I'm writing and so on, which I'm, after I get off the phone today, I have to preach this Sunday and I'm putting a homily together now and I've got to just trust because I know I can't do it on my own. And I think that's what I've learned uh, in my formation and in my relationship with Christ is the fact that when I was a young referee, I never gave it a second thought about the ability that God gave me. I thought it was all about me. I thought, yeah, I'm a good referee or I'm a good athlete. And yeah, I thought I was the center of my universe. And then once my relationship and I grew deeper with Christ and realized, you know what? No, he's the center. He's the reason why I have, you know, this career that I have. And he's the reason why he's pulling me through uh, this formation program to, to make me a deacon and to preach in his name and to, uh, to the world. And Every once in a while, I sit there and realize, well, maybe because of the fact that I was in sports and refereed like the best players in the NBA, and yeah, and I, and I love Jesus Christ and I have a relationship with him, and maybe somebody will listen because I am still on TV with ESPN and ABC, and, and maybe they go, hey, he believes in the Lord. Well, you know what? Maybe I'll give it a shot. And I think this is what the Lord's calling me to do, to try to relate to the men and young men and in the world of saying, it's okay to have your job and be successful and all that, but also to love Christ. Regarding um, homilies and so on, and the responsibility that we as ordained ministers have to our parishioners and to the church and to Jesus Christ, that's the thing that's so intimidating. And it is such a responsibility. I tell people, I could stand here and talk about basketball refereeing till the cows came home, and I wouldn't be nervous in a little bit. But when you're talking about someone's eternal soul, someone coming on Sunday to try to nourish them through the word of the Lord, through the word of Christ, that's a big responsibility. And I know that's why it isn't me doing it. But I, I, what, I, what I pray about all the time is I just say, Lord, what, what do you want me to say? And I think most of the time what he's saying is he wants them to have a relationship with him. We can sit there and break down 
uh, the, all the exegesis of the gospel readings and what it meant back then, but how does it relate to their lives today? And once I found out for myself why the church teaches certain things, it made sense. And so what I try to do is, in my homilies, simplify as much as possible. It's great to get deep in homilies, and it's great to find out what's going on, but I have found, just for me anyway, of trying to be as simple as I can, make the one point, grab that one point out of the gospel where the Lord's telling me to to grasp out of this uh, the gospel and tell the people, here's what I want from them. And I think the simpler it is, the better it is, the easier it is. I have a passion, and I, I look at the faces. It's so funny now when I'm sitting on the altar that I see all the people's faces. And there's not a lot of happy faces out there. They're come for nourishment. My goal is to almost put a little hop in their step as they leave church, to put a little faith in the Lord, to pray to Him during the week, not just come on Sundays, to be able to have that relationship with Him like as they have with me of talking to me about everything that happens in their day. I find the homilies are very much of a challenge, but I find it also very, very rewarding. And you've been listening to Steve Javi and What a Life Story. And that prayer life that so many people of faith have, it's a serious thing and it guides so many of us. The word deacon came to mind during one of those specific prayers his wife had been talking about. A great story, Steve Javi's story, a basketball story, a faith story, a Catholic story, a Philadelphia story, because you can hear it right there every second. And we love accents on this show and how different all of us sound and how different all of us live. Steve Javi's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories. And we tell stories of every kind here on the show. And sometimes, every once in a while, some some tough ones. And this one is homelessness. And it's something that, well, it's affecting many people in this country and many families. And we've all seen it on the street, folks. Someone with a sign, someone asking us for a few bucks. And we've always had to wonder, is that money going to a drug habit? Is that really going to help that person? And we feel just horrible because that a person could be in that place. Well, there before the grace of God go I, is what we think. And then we move on. Well, one person decided not to move on and to find out the real wide range of homelessness because it's more than that person on the street. And his name is Mark Horvath. And he's experienced the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard. But he found his voice again when he founded the Invisible People Project and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their lives. Today, he's the online voice of the homeless, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark's hearing from Josiah and his wife, Trisha. Here's Mark. Josiah and Trisha, we're here in Seattle at Tent City 3. Tell me about it. Um, Tent City 3. Oh, yeah. Okay, um, well, we came here from Alaska, and we had originally thought that we were gonna stay in a hotel for about like a week. And, um, sorry, we're checking on a two-year-old. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so we thought we were gonna stay in a hotel for about a week, it'd be easy to get an apartment. It did not work out that way at all. And so I previously had come down a few months before that because I had a, 
a drug addiction. I came down here to get some treatment. And uh, I remember hearing that they had these great family shelters that's super easy to get into. We'd have no problem with that. So that was my theory I went on. And it was not like that at all. We came down here, we had our two-year-old. Um, we called a couple of shelters. They called us to go down to one of the family shelters and when we got there at like eight o'clock at night, they said it was the wrong family. <laughs> so we couldn't stay. Um, we were told that if we separated, that we could easily be sheltered. So we would have to split up so one of us could take our child and that the other person could get sheltered somewhere else. That didn't work for us either since we're married and we have a happy marriage. We didn't want to split up. Um, we finally got to Tent City because they took us and they took, they took children. Although when we got here, he was the only child. Um, we went from one child to about, I think, 10 kids at one point. Something like that, yeah. They had like 10 kids here. So he was super happy playing with all the kids. Um, we've been here a little over a year. Maybe, maybe like a year. 14 months, something like that. 14 months, something like that. Um, since we've been in Tent City, my husband got a job. He has a full-time job. We've been saving money to get an apartment. Uh, housing absolutely is horrible trying for us trying to get. Um, We've called several different agencies. Either they won't take us because we're not currently in an addiction or we are not disabled enough to qualify for their benefits. Um, my husband had a traumatic brain injury and when we called one of the agencies and they are asking us all these questions about, you know, do you have an addiction? Are you in recovery? Do you use anyone have a disability? And we're going over all of this and she said that we didn't score high enough right. <laughs> to get any kind of attention, but we could hang up and try and call again and start all over again. And she told us to lie. And I was like, you want us to lie about this? Like, I felt really uncomfortable about that. If you lie and then you get all these benefits, what happens when the lie is found out? You know, like that just really sat really ill with me. Or when they said that if we were still currently in our addiction that we could easily get housing because we have a child. It makes no sense that you have two people that have been clean Right, you're two years clean now. Yes, well, like a year and a half. Well, a year and a half. A year and a half. Year and a half. But still, like a year and a half clean, and we don't qualify for housing. But somebody who is shooting up on the side of the road, they get housing, and they don't have any kids. But then they lose their housing in a few months. Right. It's infuriating, actually. Right. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Homeless services makes it so hard for people to get help. It does. It's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So we're in a tent city. Mm -hmm. You guys are looking over because your kid's over there. Yeah. And I love tent cities because I'm an old hippie. Mm -hmm. And this is a self-governed mm -hmm. place where it's community. So your kid's safe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But there's homeless people here. My goodness, how could you let your kid run around homeless people? I know. Maybe it's because we're homeless ourselves. I don't know. Well, <laughs> well we know these homeless people. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's that's the biggest part about uh, the public's uh, thought of what a homeless person is. They go downtown and they look at the people shooting up on the side of the road, and that's what they that's what they're thinking. Oh, all homeless people are like this. Right. It's not the truth. I have met numerous amounts of homeless people who are super nice who are super respectful all they're trying to do is get out of the rut and it's just harder than anyone can imagine sometimes right. uh, you know what? i think people always think that when they see someone on the street and they have a sign that says they're hungry and they're homeless and they're dirty 
I get infuriated when I see people with their signs on the street. There are too many people that will give you a shower, that will give you food. What you're asking, when people are like that, they're probably either drunk or high and they can't get into a shelter. Yeah. Most of the program is yeah, they're trying to survive, but they is, they think that all homeless people are like that, right? And they're and not. It's a small percentage. It is a very small percentage of the people that are like that. The most homeless people you no, don't no, even no. know they're homeless. No. Yeah. And that's what's so amazing about Ten City Three and the other Ten Cities, sanctioned Ten Cities here, is I mean, it's as clean as it can be. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that it's in a church parking lot. Thank God for this church that it's allowing. Oh, absolutely. I wish more churches would. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about 1033 since we're talking about it. Let's see. It's, we have to be, you have to be sober to be here. Sobriety is required. We have a code of conduct. It's a strict code of conduct. There's no drinking. There's no drugs. There's no violence. Um, you can't have any weapons in here. You can't have a knife that's bigger than three and a half inches. Um, if somebody wants to come in here to stay here, that's that's great. That's awesome. You have to have a valid driver's license or an ID card or a passport. It's just got to be a government-issued ID. And then they run a background check for sex offenders, not just in the city, but for nationally as well. And we do that to protect ourselves as well as the kids. You know, that just makes everybody safer. There's some shelters that don't check for that. There's a lot of shelters that just let you in without an ID or any kind of a background check because everybody needs shelter. But just here at this one, we raise the bar a little bit. You you have to work to be here. Um, you don't have to pay to live here, but participation's required. We have someone who runs the desk. We have an executive committee that's made up of five people. People are, there's 24 hour security. You have to patrol the inside of the, the tent city as well as the outside neighborhood. You so, guys patrol the outside neighborhood too? We do. Within a block radius of the camp, yeah. Yep. We pick up that is awesome. No yep. but we stop. We pick up trash, we pick up whatever's left behind. We make sure that we take care of the bus stops that we use. Um we just keep an eye out for our neighbors. Like actually people always freak out if they have a tent city that comes in their neighborhood. But statistic-wise, we make their crime go down because we keep an eye out for people right. trying to break in someone's car, break into someone's house. You know, we ask questions when we see weirdness. You know, people think that we're the weird. We're not the weird. We keep the weird out. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what would you want people to know about homelessness that they probably don't know? A lot of people have a misunderstanding that if you're homeless and you have a family, that CPS needs to get involved and they need to take your kids. There is no reason that you can be homeless living in a shelter or in a tent city and you cannot be a great parent. Or it doesn't mean that your family has to get taken away from you. I am so glad you brought this up because you're spot on and CPS, Child Protective Services, mm -hmm. should only be called if there's abuse and Absolutely. the child is in danger. Absolutely. Homelessness is not necessarily danger. It's not. Families should be kept together. Absolutely. You know, it's more beneficial for the family to be kept together, Absolutely. even if you're living in a tent, than Absolutely. separating the kids. Absolutely. My child's got a family of 70 people here. Right. Any one of these other 70 homeless people would take a bullet for my child in a heartbeat. I had, a, I had an accident recently and I had to go to the hospital. I broke my foot and I had to leave my son here with someone in our camp while he could come home from work. So there was a couple of hours where he was by himself. Never once did I even worry. Not once did not 10 people jump up to right. help him because they knew he knows them. Right. I have. It takes a village to raise a family and I have a village yeah. and I've got a great village. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Three wishes. House. 
Nothing big, just Nothing house. big, just a tiny house, yeah. Something that was ours. Or come up with better housing so that we don't have to have tent cities or that there's people on or the more streets. More affordable housing. More so affordable housing. Afford it. Affordable housing would be amazing. Those would be my three wishes. I'd have affordable housing, cool. a home for us, and a car. And you've been listening to Trisha and her husband, Josiah, and they have a two-year-old, and, well, this is the voice of the homeless. It's more than just that random person on the street, as she described, holding up a sign, dirty. And they're homeless, too, folks. They have families, those folks, too. But that's not everyone who's homeless, and we're here to bring voice to a a group of people that all are voiceless. And thanks to Mark Horvath for all that he's doing. And by the way, he's experienced it himself firsthand from the highs to the lows. And by the way, we've all been at highs and low points in our lives and but for some help, perhaps have been in precarious situations ourselves. You can learn more about Mark's 501c3. It's a nonprofit, Invisible People. You can see him on YouTube. Go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv and give to this good cause. The Invisible People Project, Mark Horvath's story, and today, Josiah and Trisha's story here on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and from everything in between, and we love telling stories about American dreamers, and as always, our American Dreamers series is sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network, who work hard to help effectuate policies that turn small businesses into bigger ones. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named Bill Austin, but you'll be glad to have met him. Let's take a listen. No one had ever paid for a quarter of school for me. I had to earn my own money, and I took a job making earpieces for hearing aids. I didn't really expect at all to be in the hearing aid business. I thought it was a boring nothing business. I was going to be heroic and save lives as a doctor and what do I care about old people? I was going to be with the young nurses in the hospital <laughs> doing great things. And uh, But an old man came in and no one was able to help him and they asked me if I could take a look at him and I did. And when I saw what it meant in his eyes, that was my first like real direct contact with somebody helping them with hearing. And when I saw what that meant to him, it was like giving him life. I went home to uh, 2770 Dean Boulevard down by the Calhoun Beach Hotel where I was staying and I had a cot upstairs and I went upstairs, sat on the edge of the cot. I do remember on the way home, there was a quote in the cantilever of the bus that struck me and 
and I lived my life kind of in that direction. It said, the true path to humility is not to stoop till you're lower than yourself, but rather to stand at your true height against some greater nature that will show the real smallness of your greatest greatness. And that's how I felt. I didn't want to be falsely humble. I wanted to be challenged like that by some greater nature. I got home and I sat on the cot. And as I sat on the edge of the cot, I started talking out loud to myself, just like I was talking to somebody, but there was no one there. And I said, Bill, the reason you want to be a doctor is so you can help people. If you do this work, you'll be able to help people and you won't kill anyone. As a doctor, you're sure to kill many. And I realized something that I hadn't seen before. I saw the future and knew what I wanted to be part of. I realized at that moment, I said, Bill, how many people can you help a day as a doctor? 20, 25, night will fall, no one will be coming then, you'll wake up the next day and it'll be again serving those people that you can serve if you work with teams of people, the hands of many. Coming together in a business, your products and services can touch an unlimited number of people. You'll have the leverage to move the world. And I wanted to be part of that team. I didn't have to own it. I didn't have to run it. I've always felt like no one works for me. I work with them. I just saw that as the future, and I had to go to work to get to the future. And so the first thing I did, the only asset I had, was a little rental house that I'd made money during the Korean War. Scrap metal was valuable, and I took the axe to many a vintage car. I chopped them up and sold them for scrap, and I made enough money to invest in a little rental house. And that's all I had was that little rental house. So I sold that house, and that was the money I used to start the business. I had $3,000 and I had to make a profit before I ran out of money. I'd read books that said, uh, well, you know, you got to expect to have financing for the first five years or it'll be at least three years before you're profitable when you start a new business. Well, I figured I had three months. I didn't have a choice. I was down to the last money to meet my cost that week at the end of three months. And the next week, the checks arrived more than enough to cover that week, and I barely made it. I'd receive an order. I said, you know, hearing is the connection to the family and life, and who knows, this might be a graduation or a, a wedding of a child or something for this person's hearing aid that we're servicing. So at the end of the day, the last pickup of mail was about 5.30 or so in front of our 
facility, if there was one order that was completed after the mail pickup, just even one order, I would always put in the car, drive it downtown to the main post office, go to the back up on the dock, ask the guys working there which box was going out, which was being processed next, and I would put it in that gurney to make sure that that hearing aid was moving back to the person who needed it. There wasn't as much profit in that transaction as the gas that it took to go there and come back. But to me, the most important thing was to not let down someone who trusted me with that service. And I wanted to do the best I could every single time. And I got stacks of letters from people saying they never received service like this, and the word spread. And so our business grew rapidly. And what a voice, Bill Austin's. And it's like so many of our American Dreamers stories. Starting out with nothing, taking that little rental house and taking a chance. And in the end, really providing a service to people, changing their lives. Hearing aids doesn't seem so glamorous. It didn't seem so glamorous to Bill. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Bill Austin's story. He's the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies. His story, here on Our American Stories. stories and Bill Austin's story. And Bill picks up things with the story of how hearing loss used to be addressed many decades ago. Um, you know, the cupped hand, <laughs> a horn from an animal, the wide surface of a fan, the sound would strike it and you could hold it in your teeth and uh, the vibration would go through your teeth and stimulate the other ear. There was acoustic chairs that would pick up uh, like in lion's mouth the sound and you could have a, a discreet tube you'd stick in your ear. They're hearing canes people would walk with and then they'd hold their cane up and try to talk to you. There, there were all kinds of non-electric things made in the 1800s. At the turn of the century, Miller Reese Hutchins in Mobile, Alabama had developed the Acousticon, an electronic hearing aid, which was used at a coronation in Great Britain. They were A and B batteries. You'd strap something on your leg. Uh, you'd have something under your clothes, and then you'd have a giant microphone, which would be about that big around. You'd wear outside on your chest to hear with, and big, thick black cords running up to the ear. And so the aids used to be uh, large. You'd, sometimes you'd carry them. Some of the electronic aids, you'd have two people carry and put it in a room for a businessman to sit there and talk with. And then the transistor was developed in the 50s and hearing aids were one of the first things that transistors went into, actually. That made it possible to make them a lot smaller. We made 
eyeglass, hearing aids, and Eleanor Roosevelt worn her glasses, the Otarian. Big, thick, huge bows. No one was supposed to know. I mean, the things were so thick. They were <laughs> thick. And, you know, they won't know I wear hearing aids because they're in my glasses. <laughs> I don't know who wouldn't know. And they had barrette models that you could hide in your hair and earring models that were big, clunky-looking earrings that would clip on your ears and uh, different ways to try to make hearing aids discreet, and uh, they were pretty big. I felt, I could just feel people, and I felt that they felt impaired and stigmatized because they were wearing something hanging outside, and I said, that's like a crutch. If we can put it in the ear, and if it's custom made for their ear, it'll be like part of them. And they will feel better about the correction. And then I looked at the space in the ear and I said, that's just unused space. I can take these parts that are strung out in mass produced hearing aids and recombine them into the space. I can get them in the space so I can make these things. In 1961, I made the first really nice in-the-ear hearing aids. And that was considered, uh, you know, kind of revolutionary at the time. And people would call it an invention. I never called it an invention. As far as I was concerned, I was just reconfiguring components to fit in space that happened to exist in the ear. <laughs> hearing Aid Magazine asked me, in 1979, what will be the future of the hearing aid business? And I said, there is no future because in the future, we will really be in the communication business, helping people communicate across barriers of language, distance, noise, to help people with normal hearing communicate and function better. 39 years later, in August of 2018, Starkey unveiled Livio AI, a hearing aid that does just that. Translate 27 languages, forwards and backwards, Russian to English, English to Russian, it doesn't matter. Starkey's relentless pursuit of innovation in service of their fellow man has led the company to grow to $650 million in annual revenue, making it the largest hearing aid manufacturer in America and leading Forbes to estimate Bill's personal net worth at $2.5 billion. I had to go to work for money, I'd stay home. I, I just, it doesn't motivate me. It does not motivate me, I'm not interested. I haven't ever been interested. I knew I, it's unhandy to run out of it, and you have to treat it with respect and not waste it. But uh, as far as being motivated, somebody saying, this could be really big, you can have a really lot of money. I, like, I'm about as bored by that as I can imagine. What is exciting is to have the resources to say, yes, we can. And this Yes We Can is most seen in their Starkey Hearing Foundation, which is Bill's primary focus, not running the company. <laughs> They've given the gift of hearing to those who can't afford it in over 100 countries and to over 1 million people so far. So we uh, have an opportunity to earn from our service that we give to those who can pay 
And then if we do a really good job, we have enough left over that we can help those that need our help. And, you know, I usually manage to use up most of our money. I, I find good uses for it. I travel the world helping people with hearing aids. More than half the year I'm traveling because it's what I know how to do. I'll do thousands and thousands of hearing aids per year myself. I've listened to more hearing aids than anyone in the world many, many times over. And I could make more money, I guess, if I concentrated on work, but I wouldn't know life. So I trade money for life. You know, there's no other person that is president of a hearing aid company or a CEO. None, no, none in the world that would do what I do, for sure. There are six companies, soon to be five, that make 98% of the world's hearing aids. We're the only one in the U.S. The other ones, they never touch a patient. They've never fit a hearing aid in their lives, not one of them. Several layers down, it's all suits and business. There's none of them that would take the time to work on deformed ears. Like, I took the time to detail those very difficult ears that were sent pictures of. They're just hugely deformed. I'll go over there after you leave, and I'll cut the shells, and then I'll go up and show the technician how to build them. Anyone else would say, my time's worth too much. That's just one little pair of hearing aids, one order. They would say, you know, I've got million-dollar businesses to, to, to take care of here. I can't do that sort of thing. Well, I can do it. If you pay someone else to do it, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'm rich here, I, I feel guilty, so here's some money. But no one makes more time. When you give your time, you give yourself. Where does Bill Austin get this view on life? I couldn't rationalize the existence of God. I mean, I just couldn't rationalize it. Anyway, I think about it and think about it. And in my very early 20s, I was thinking about what God would tell me to do if he could talk, but I just kept trying to think for him. I never asked. And the greatest thing I ever did was ask. I don't know what possessed me to do that because I never had before. I just said, I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm going to accept on faith alone. That was the best thing I ever did. Because the direction I received was better than any idea I've ever had. It's given me life because I've been able to focus on what's really important. And so my idea of wealth, if you had to say, Bill, are you wealthy? It's not a, it's not a number in the billions. It's not a money. I'm wealthy if someone needs a hand up, if I can say, yes, I can, I, I'll help you. That lifts me up. I'm spiritually nourished by the work I do. I feel energized. And if I ever had to say, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that, I would feel poor. I would feel very poor. And my goodness, this is more than just a business or a startup or entrepreneur story. And again, this is what we've discovered doing these American Dreamers series. And they're, they're just, each time I hear them, I'm just more stunned each time. The generosity of these guys, the nature of the people, especially these founders. He, he wanted to solve a problem, and he did. People felt impaired 
and stigmatized from these large things hanging off their ears. And he goes, I just wanted to custom make them for their ears so it would become a part of them. And that changes someone's life. And then on top of that, here he is giving away over a million, again, a million hearing aids for nothing, for nothing. That's some social justice, folks. I mean, creating jobs, creating a tax base, solving a problem, and then giving away one million, one million hearing aids, which you could have charged someone for. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Bill Austin's story, a part of our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories and Bill Austin's story, the billionaire hearing aid CEO who spends most of his time fitting hearing aids on individual customers. When the president of Burundi, we were there a few years ago, and I was fitting people in church at a congregation of 8,000, and they televised the service, and they asked me to come up to the church. I was fitting on the grounds behind the church, and say something and so I came and spoke to the congregation and I, I stepped down and the president got up and he said can you believe that the Starkey people came all the way from Minnesota to help us and he said and Bill Austin left his and I knew I knew the next word before he said it I knew he was going to say he left his family to be with us and and I started I said no and he goes ahead and says family and I said no 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 that's wrong I didn't leave my family I came here that I might know the rest of my family and that's just the way I feel that came out of me without me thinking about it. I had no control over my voice this is the president of the country and I'm interrupting him when he's talking on TV and I'm I'm in I'm in the audience I was headed out the door to go back and fit hearing aids and I all of a sudden I just started shouting no that's wrong. I, I didn't leave my family. Juarez, Mexico used to be one of the most dangerous border cities. When it was at the height of its bad problems, I went there and a woman came into this hospital where we were doing the mission with her grandson, who was about 13 years old. She said, I've been waiting a month for you to come. She didn't live there. She lived quite a ways away. And I said, well, why didn't you go home? And she said, I couldn't because I might have missed you. And she said, I, I can't live much longer. And my grandson won't be able to take care of himself if he can't hear. When I had the boy hearing good, you should have seen that woman's face. It went from all of this weight of the world on her to just total light. It was like she was happy that she could die. To see someone truly happy that they could die. She had been willing herself to stay alive because she knew her grandson who was an orphan couldn't take care of himself. He had no one else. 
I saw a woman in El Salvador, early 30s, and her kidneys failed. She lost her eyesight. Her hearing was fading out. And they asked her if she had any last wishes. And she said, I would like to thank the people who have cared for me. I, I, I need to hear to be able to thank the people. And they said, well, someone's coming. We were coming in about three weeks. There's someone coming with hearing aids, but you won't be able to live that long. And she said, yes, I will. And she did. They brought her in in a wheelchair. I fit her with hearing aids. Probably about the only time that tears were just running down my cheeks because of the nobility of this woman, not asking for something for herself, but just wanting to be able to thank people. She was so happy. She did thank them. She lived another over two weeks before she died. I learn from every patient I work on because I really care. I've done like six U.S. presidents and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, two popes. I mean, I work on everybody. Movie stars, Steve Martin, Ozzy was just here, Charlton Heston, to whoever. The people that I used to watch, Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, when I was a kid, little boy, they, they become my friends. Billy Graham used to say, Bill's my best friend from Minnesota, and Gene Autry would said I was his best friend. The only thing he was buried with was something I gave him that he treasured more than anything else. You know, I fit Robert Schuller and Hugh Hefner the same day. I have no barriers. And so people really respond to being cared about. And some people, even though they're really important, like movie stars and rock stars and celebrities, they have people chasing them all the time because of who they are, wanting their picture with them, wanting this, wanting that. I don't want anything, and they know it. And to have someone care about them who's not looking for something is very special to them. Special to them to feel that, to be cared about without, what am I going to get? I'm going to get my picture with this guy. I'm going to get to go to his rock concert. I'm going to get something. And I'll be invited to go to rock concerts and things by people who come here, and, and I don't go because I'm too busy. I don't have time for it. So they recognize that. So we're on uh, kind of on the same plane, person to person. Instead of them being in the celebrity world and me being a celebrity chaser, they'd like to relate to some people in their lives like that. You know, Warren Buffett came here one day to get hearing aids, and the day he came, I'd just flown in a whole plane load of kids from the Idaho School for the Deaf, and I'd fit the kids in Oregon at School for the Deaf and Washington School for the Deaf. I got home, and Idaho said, what about us? And I said, well, I can't come back, but I'll charter a plane and bring the whole school down. And I was working on them, and Warren came in, and so I'm going to take care of anybody that shows up. And so I'm detailing impressions over there on that motor, and then I was cutting shells over here, and Warren comes up watching me, and I said, 
would you like to have lunch? Yeah, yeah, he said, let's have lunch. I said, well, the cafeteria is right up that ramp. Go up there and you can find anything you want to eat, Warren. And I could see the disappointment in his face. And I said, Warren, the conference room is open. Just bring your tray in there. So he thought I was going to join him. Well, anyway, he comes in here, and I'm busy cutting aids for the shells. And so I told Mark McCarthy, I said, go in there and talk to Warren while he's having lunch. And he came out, and he's frustrated because he can't get my attention. So he pulls out this big, thick billfold. It's like almost three inches thick. It's huge, thick wallet. And he holds it out in front of me, and I'm down there cutting shells. And he said, do you want Warren's money? And I said, no, I don't need Warren's money. <laughs> he wanted to buy my company because he couldn't get my attention. And the company isn't for sale, and I don't want to sell it. And I told him, I said, it wouldn't be the same. They're looking at what's your return, what's the shareholder return, what are you making? Uh, I'm giving a lot away. That wouldn't go over so big. I could have sat here and had lunch with a guy. Some people pay a couple million dollars to have lunch with him. He came to me and I didn't have lunch with him. And the reason I didn't have lunch with him is why well, had some poor kids that no one knows from Idaho that needed my help. So what am I gonna do? Neglect them because some big deal is here? And what a what a story. Uh, Warren Buffett has a net worth of over 80 billion. And yet Bill Austin didn't treat him any differently. He was busy fitting hearing aids for the kids at that Idaho school for the deaf. And then he helped Warren Buffett. And I just love it. He said, look, there are people paying a million dollars to have lunch with this guy. But not me. Oh, and by the way, Warren, my business isn't for sale. It's not for sale. When we come back, more of this remarkable American voice. And this is a distinctly American voice. Bill Austin's story, our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages. Our American stories in the final portion of this remarkable life story of Starkey Hearing Technologies founder, Bill Austin. Well, I think the shaping of my life began with my grandparents living with them during World War II. My parents were off working in a munitions plant in another state. But I asked my grandfather about his father who died when I was a baby. And he said, well, the thing that struck him about his father wasn't what he did as much as the way he did it. He said, for instance, when he was 
eight years old, some people moved in three and a half miles from them. And his father heard that they had uh, children, but they had no cow. And he told his son, Franklin, my grandfather, which was his youngest son, and the most expendable, he said, Frank, uh, those children will need milk. You take our best cow and walk her over there so the children will have milk. And Frank did that, my grandfather, and he came uh, back and he said what he noticed was he never mentioned ever to anyone anything about giving those folks a cow. And that struck him. He said he noticed that he never sought the people out to say, I'm the great guy that sent the cow to you. He said it was simply a matter for him that the children needed milk and he had more than one cow so he could help. So as he told me about his father, his father was an orphan in the Civil War. His family had been massacred by raiders and uh, they'd burned the farmstead to the ground and stole the horses and cattle. And This boy had run into the bushes at five years old. He was the only survivor. He didn't even know what state they came from. The only thing he knew was his name. He had nothing, he had no one. Uh, the lieutenant, when he saw he was the only survivor, stopped the pursuit and took him to a place of safety on the James River. To a mill, the first place he could drop this boy off safely and with a miller that had one leg called Peg Leg Nelson. And uh, Peg Leg uh, let the boy sleep in the mill and work for his keep. And so he made him a bed of straw in the mill and he worked there until he was 15 years old and was never paid a cent. But in those days at 15, it was time to leave and strike out on your own. And he didn't know what to do, how that could happen because he had no money, no place to get started, knew no one. And the lieutenant who found him, it so happened, passed away. And the lieutenant had willed this boy the land he earned for serving on the Union side in the Civil War. My great-grandfather took that land and became a successful farmer and raised a fine family. And that's why I have a chance at life today is because that happened. Now, the land wasn't worth much. Land was almost free and those cheap in those days. But it meant the world to that young man that someone gave him that chance. So, you know, I used to not be able to talk about the lieutenant because I thought it was so noble that he would care. He could have given it to a relative, the land, to a friend, someone else that would have said, that's my great friend, the lieutenant, and got some recognition for it. But instead he gave it to someone who couldn't thank him, couldn't do anything for him because he knew the boy needed a chance. So I, you know, I thought that was incredibly noble. I wanted to live my life with some kind of contribution to life itself. So I admired him. I wanted to be like him. And yet Bill couldn't bring himself to publicly talk about him for decades. Well, I'd choke up and cry because of the lieutenant. What's wrong with crying? Oh, well, you know, men aren't supposed to cry in front of people, in front of audiences. And I, I, if I tried to tell the story, I just, I just, I couldn't talk. And then I realized I needed to because I decided it was a good example 
because this one person did what he could without getting recognition or being paid, today we affect millions of people because of one act of caring. So I like to say we can't afford to miss a chance to do that because one simple act might be so significant for the world. It might keep your own great-grandchildren from being killed by terrorists. It might, it might, who knows what it might do if you continue down the path of respect for life and caring and what might happen if you didn't. So I used to think it was the lieutenant. That's when I first stopped and it went there. And then I realized, well, it wasn't the lieutenant. It was the person who cared about the lieutenant who made him want to do that. And then, well, it was the person who cared about that person. And then I realized it went all the way back to his love. God's love. That he gave us, that started the whole thing. That's what makes people different. That's what gives us our true humanity, is that spiritual enrichment we get from knowing God's love. And I believe that's why I was told that my responsibility was to reflect use hearing to reflect his love so people might know him. I think you know him from feeling that caring through other people, not directly. It's through people. So that's my idea. I'm not saying that I know. I'm not a preacher. I don't want to be a preacher. And I don't want to say that that's what God is telling anyone to do. I just know that's what I feel. In 2010, right after the earthquake in Haiti, well, I was in Haiti. Miley Cyrus was with me. And Miley's over fiddling with her phone at this Catholic school. And we're fitting kids with hearing aids. And I said, what's she doing? And they said, well, she's tweeting her followers. and. I don't carry a phone. That's another thing that's weird that I don't do. So I'm not looking at text. I've never seen our website. Not once. I don't know what's on it. I don't know how to look for it. I don't know what it would be on it. I, I mean, I suppose. It's really lovely. Is it? It's a nice website. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I wouldn't mind seeing it. It's just that, I don't know, I guess I'm always busy and no one's ever showed it to me. And so. Anyway, Miley says she's tweeting that this is the best day of her life. And I said, well, that's what everyone says. That's what President Clinton says, that's what Ray Lewis says, that's what athletes, movie stars, presidents, everybody says this is the best day of their life. Uh, Ray Lewis, right after he won the Super Bowl in New Orleans, and he, he was the most valuable player, and he goes on a mission with us in March, and he said, I've been given a job by ESPN, but this is the best day of my life. I want to do this. This is that I've never done anything that's good. We're in Tanzania and Africa. They all say that. And so I said, well, that's what everyone says. And I started thinking, billions of followers, that's it. Because I felt like a failure. Uh, you know, the Twin Towers go down. There's terrorism here and there around the world. And I felt like 
I was losing ground, like we weren't reflecting light as fast as the darkness was encroaching and I wasn't going to get the job done. And then I realized, I said, hey, with this, we could affect a consciousness shift with so many followers that admire these people and think about what they're saying, we could compound the message to more and more people and try to get more and more people addicted to good virus. And so I thought that I see the way. So I went home from that experience and I started thinking virtually every day. I really like my job and I think I know how to do it now if I only had more time. I wish I had more time, but I would never pray for it because I thought I had no right to ask for anything for myself. Because my only prayer every day in the morning before I would leave to work would be for his direction so I might serve better than I've ever served before. God's will be done. And great job as always to Alex. He does a superb job on this series. And thanks again to Job Creators Network. And they work hard to fight for the policies that help small business owners grow and hire more people and have more impact on the world. And my goodness, there is just so much here to unpack. But what we did learn here is the power of a story, folks. Him listening to his grandfather, the grandfather telling him about this lieutenant. And never having met this man, he wanted to be like this man. And that is the power of stories. It's their imitative power. And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories. Give you stories worthy of imitation. The world doesn't have enough of those. They need a lot more. And we try to do that for you each and every day here. He said, we can't afford to miss a chance. Who knows what it might do? And what might happen if you didn't? God's love. That's what he was talking about here. And his responsibility to use hearing aids to reflect God's love. So, well, he might know him and we might know him. I'm not a preacher, he said. But my goodness, he's a minister. And he's got a ministry, for sure. Bill Austin's story, the story of Starkey Hearing Technologies, here on Our American Stories.